Welcome back to uh, part two of the Carly Barton podcast with Awesome Boone. Thank you so much for tuning back in. And uh, yeah, anyway, let's just get straight back into this interesting conversation. You're like, is that really your method of thinking? Because that's scary. You're so confident that your 200-year-old bloody educational system, which the people who developed it have been dead for a long time and would have no understanding or concept of modern life, in the 21st century and yet we're like we're getting loads of feedback from the, the customers who are using going through this experience that it doesn't seem to be working particularly well but we're not going to change anything because mm. it's got to be the kids yeah <laughs> it must bad. it must be these little people who've got something wrong with them as opposed to our oh, our system is now broken and flawed drives me to distraction i can't tell you the amount of conversations i've had with head teachers and they're just so stuck they're so rigid in their thinking well this is this is what we've done this is this is how we operate what do you want us to do change it uh yeah well we're, we're so flexible in other ways think about consumerism think about we you know we're not all just sat there watching black and white tellies going this is the way we've always done it like we, we can be flexible so, but we're just not applying that flexibility to, to the right things no no, no, exactly. That's a really valid point. Yeah. I mean, we've learned to we've learned to sort of deepen our human experience on so many different ways. Like you say, yeah, improve our, our, our use of technology to make our lives better. And then, yeah, yeah, we're still completely rigid and stuck in in, in certain other systems. It's a crazy, it's, it's a crazy world. So it's, it's a crazy world of self sabotage, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we do need, and then we're too blind, and we're we're too driven by ego to go. No, no, yeah, no, no, this this works. This works. You're like, really? It doesn't bloody work, does it? There's so much that doesn't work, and there's so much. And that's the thing is that there's this rigid mindset which is just terrified of any sort of change. Mm. Um, and that's something that I've experienced a lot, a lot. Whereas you know, when I was when I was an alcoholic and you know using prescription drugs or recreational drugs to sort of dull down my daily experience you know I was so rigid in the stories that I told myself oh this mm. is this is how you have to do things and the idea of changing that mindset the idea of stopping drinking the idea of addressing my issues was just terrifying so I'm, I'm, I'm imagining it's obviously the same for the people who are in those positions of power it's, it's just it's comfort zone isn't it even if it's uncomfortable and there'll be a payoff somewhere there's always a payoff isn't there so there's a resistance and then there's always a payoff like what what am I getting out of this not changing? Yeah, I, I think, again, that's sort of, uh, that, I think that sort of almost shows where the system is broken because, I mean, even if you do, say, go into politics, you come into power, you're only, you're only in power for sort of a certain period of time, say, because obviously there's four-year segments, isn't it? So then are you, are you ever motivated to look further than four years? Probably not, because that's, that's what you're going to be judged yeah. on, isn't it, in the here and now? This is the craziness about the system is that the system is set up to keep people stuck because you're like, listen, I've only got four bloody years to create change. So well, I'm going to deal with the here and now and what is going to keep me in power instead of going, right, well, this might be an unpopular option. Mm. But in 10 years time, we're going to all see the benefits from it. And actually, that's one of the things that I experience on a daily basis when talking to, you know, government, MPs, police you know, people at the home office about about the cannabis situation is that behind closed doors, they will all say, 
no matter what level they're at, they will all say, oh, we're in favour of it. We think it's brilliant. We think everybody should have medical cannabis. We think it's great. We think, you know, it's going to be brilliant for the country. People desperately need it. You know, we're not we're not really that worried about the, the side effects. It's a bit scaremongering. And then you say, you know, so you say, oh, okay, so are you going to do something about it then? And they're like, oh, no, no, no. I can't possibly risk my job, my, you know, you know, the four-year cycle of, of being in power. You can't possibly risk that. But that's the crazy thing, isn't it? Is that, you know, I mean, same as you, you know, we, we both have access to, you know, people in positions of power. We've both been into parliament. We've both spoken to MPs and from across different political parties. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but then this is the frustrating thing is that, you know, I know I've when the conversations I've had with MPs and they're like, you know, off record, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Actually, no, I mean, I don't have an issue right, with no. it. Yeah, It's not me. It's not grow it, tax it, yeah. you know, help <laughs> yeah. it fund schools, the NHS. <laughs> Oh, so you're going to support it? Oh, well, 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 I mean, I'm not, well, not I'm publicly, not, no, no, I can't, I can't, no. can't do it publicly. I can't do it. You're like, what? Yeah. You're like, what? So you recognise this system is flawed, but you're too terrified because if you do step out of line, yeah. you know, like we've seen with like someone like Professor David Nutt, who, mm. who stepped out of line, yeah, you did, know, yeah. his whole comments of horse riding is more dangerous than ecstasy. Yeah you know, got him absolutely booted out of his position of power because you went against the government rhetoric. Mm. And so, yeah, you do have that fear. But then you kind of, you know, I think to myself, you know, if I found myself in a position, you know, where, you know, I rely on my wage to pay my mortgage, to pay my kids' school fees, to, you know, to live, you know, and you're like, all right, so you can make a decision to put your head above the parapet and to say something. yeah. But you might get fired and these people have the power to actually make your life incredibly difficult. So you could potentially lose everything. Mm. You know, or are you going to go, actually, sod it, I don't give a shit. And uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to speak my truth. So you you can understand why a lot of these people are like, you know, privately, absolutely. And, and you know, privately, I will try and push it. But I have to be careful because people like, you know, Theresa May, who's adamant against medical cannabis adamant against recreational cannabis all of any adamant against any use of cannabis which is bizarre considering her husband <laughs> profits from legal medical and cannabis. i believe her mom had ms yeah she she she's diabetic right. so so yeah. cannabis would really help her because yeah. cannabis and diabetes you know yeah. go- google it there's lots of research Absolutely. it helps it helps balance your blood sugars yeah you know, and but that's the system which really irritates me in the UK. And you know, again, I did a video about that not so long ago, where you know, Theresa May's husband, you know, private equity firm funds and profits from legal medical cannabis. Victoria Aitken, our very own drugs minister, <laughs> right? Her husband exactly the same benefits from it, mm. and because her husband benefits from it, our drugs minister actually can't talk about cannabis. Yeah, it's a complete. If an alien race, I always think this, if an alien race landed on the planet and went, right, how do you sort this, like, whole lawmaking, like, citizen stuff out? And we explained politics they, and, like, how completely corrupt it is. They would just be like, what? Mm. Wouldn't they? But, but it's the, become so normal. But again, this is, this is, this is, the, this is the lunacy behind the whole system our whole notion and the, the way our political system is set up is hundreds yeah. and hundreds and hundreds of years old. 
Mm. And, the, and, the, and the people in power now are still running on that Victorian mentality. You know, it is it is absolutely bonkers that you know we're st- we're running old systems. Yeah, you know, they'd be like, what? You know, two hundred years ago we, we were hanging people. We, you know, we were doing all sorts of barbaric things, but we realised that doesn't bloody work. And yet, you know, we're not going to change our viewpoints on this. It's just, it's just, uh, yeah. It's- I hope there's a time in our lifetime where the, all of this, you know the system as exists crumbles and we come up with something better I, I don't know if it will I think it's already starting to crumble do you I really do I, I, I think we're seeing what I call the old guard lose control and I think you know within the next I think the next 30 years once all of these once all these people <laughs> have sort of, yeah, died off mm. died off there's no easy way of saying it you know that, that that old tradition, that culture will die off as well. Because so I think the younger generations, actually, when you speak to you know the, the younger generations, they're much more open-minded. They're much more flexible with their thinking. They 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 see and view life in very very different ways to these archaic dinosaurs that are currently running our system now. And I think it is just a matter of time where we we literally. And I don't get any pleasure saying it. We've just got to wait for these people just to mm. pop off their mortal coil yeah. and bugger off somewhere else, you know, so we can, you know, start a whole new way of living and, you know, expressing. And because, you know, we're so far off from where we should be, you know, just just the fact that we're still going around dropping bombs on people under the notions of, you know, fear and terrorism when actually it's, it's it's not it's about power it's about oil it's about again oh opium you know afghanistan yeah the afghan war i mean you saw the u.s army guarding the opium fields why well because america uses over 50 percent of the global opiates mm-hmm. ever produced so they're, they're they're completely invested in this whole this whole model to control the supply of the, the poppy fields that's what it comes down to. Yeah. I mean, that's the truth. Yeah. You know, I've got friends of mine, you know, special forces, you know, involved in the wars over the last 10 years. And you talk to them now, I mean, they're, they're, they've left because they're just like, it's BS. Yeah. It's absolute BS. It's got yeah. nothing to do with those threats. It's to do with control. It's to do with oil. It's to do with the crap that the Western world is consuming. America, all the oil. Look at their stupid cars that they drive with five, six litre engines you know, mm. it's just it's just bonkers, and then because everyone's bloody depressed, well, we'll just fill them up with opiate-based drugs. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I'm telling you, the aliens would be well shocked. I think the aliens already are shocked. <laughs> I think that's why they've stopped coming down here. They're like, oh, f- forget those guys. Forget it. We'll they, leave it a few hundred years. They'll burn. Balls it now. Yeah, they'll burn themselves out, <laughs> and then we'll come down and sort of maybe improve it. Sometimes I wish the aliens would turn up and sort of. Uh, Beam us up. Beam, yeah. yeah <laughs> if they're listening, that you can beam me up any day, guys. I'll be delighted to uh, come, for, come <laughs> yeah. for a visit. Are you reading us SOS? Yeah. On that note, I might just make a cup of tea and nip to the loo. That's all right. We'll, we'll, pause. we'll, we'll pause this. We'll, oh. we'll both have a pay pee, rent. A pee break. Good girl. Pay rent again. <laughs> so we're back online after a quick wee break and a top up of hot coffee and tea. Mm. Where were we? Who knows? Who knows? Where we were. Who knows where we were. What other areas should we discuss? We've talked about the whole medical cannabis and that experience. We've discussed microdosing and the benefits yeah. of microdosing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, Shall we talk more know. about uh, Carly's amnesty? Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. Let's yeah, talk. Let's talk about that because I think you know we get we'll get a lot of medical patients. Yeah. Listening and tuning in, and um, I think it's a really good initiative. And uh, so yeah, let, let, let's let's have a let's have a chin wag. Okay. About um, why that came about and all of that sort yeah. of jazz. What it's about. So it started as just a daft idea, really. <laughs> it was all the best ideas yeah. start as a daft one. I think everything that I've ever done that has been daft has come from a five in the morning, like ridiculous idea that's grown into something <laughs> more, more than that, including painting that wall blue. But you know. Some things pan out, don't they? Yeah. So basically what had happened is I, I had my private medical cannabis prescription for a month. I couldn't afford to sustain it. I was then given an NHS prescription. She wrote it for Bedrocan and Bedica. It got past two or three board meetings at the hospital, which were quite serious board meetings. Um, and then, you know, we thought that it was all going through. We were like, just about to announce that the first NHS prescription had been provided I was very excited um, and it was blocked at the f- last minute by the Brighton and Hove Medical Governance Group who didn't really say much other than, oh, it's, it's an untested medicine, but from the sounds of what was going on in the background, it was a big, shut this down now, we don't want to be the first to be doing this, um, which was really disappointing and meant that... Um, I felt like I was going backwards with everything because, you know, I was having to... I'm sure my suppliers were very... were welcoming me back with my cash <laughs> with open arms. The, the black market like, yes, suppliers. she's back. <laughs> um, but, yeah, yeah, I wasn't particularly um, thrilled. So I was like... I feel like I took a step forward for the patients who are following on. And then I sort of felt almost like I'd let them down. Like, you know, I'm not the medical governance group, but I felt I felt heavy. I was like, oh, this is going to be a kick mm. for those patients that, because um, for those of you that don't know, I, my other hat is the United Patients Alliance. And, uh, you know, we I speak to patients all day, every day uh, that are going through some really hard things. And for them, I just felt, it was just like a big kick in the stomach. I was like, oh, you know, this is bad. This is going to be really bad. We can't stay in this situation whereby you can only access this medicine if you're wealthy and everybody else has to lump it and be, continue to be criminalised. That was something that I couldn't deal with. No, it's completely wrong, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we've ever been in a situation whereby that has happened before I buy it you know a a drug that's been used for thousands and thousands of years is now only available legally for the wealthy and everybody else is you know is left to sort of deal with you know potentially unsafe product potentially not particularly great people sometimes don't have their best interests at heart unless you're lucky enough to have one of the handful of suppliers that are you know brilliant people that care you know, you're left with people that don't, and that's a real shame. Um, so, yeah, so I spent two days just crying after that, 
because I just felt, I just felt awful. I just, I was like, I really thought that I could use my suffering and my experience and my research and my work to, to open the door for other people. And I felt that we were nearly there. And it, 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 it was horrible having to then uh, step away from that with a defeat. So I was like, and you know, after a few days of, of, of sobbing into my cup of tea, I decided at five in the morning that I was going to do something radical about it to prove a point. And what I wanted to do was grow my own medicine because I, you know, in that week, um, following on from my private prescription, I'd not been able to access um, a, an indica strain. Brighton was completely dry of anything heavy that would deal with my nerve pain. I could only access hybrids or sativas, which aren't as good for me. Um, and so I felt the impact of that quite significantly. And I was like, I, I want now, I've, I've, I've been legitimized as a patient my you know two pain specialists with 33 years combined experience have said you need to you need to continue with cannabis treatment because this is really working for you so i've got a, I, I, i'm legitimate in the eyes of the law in the eyes of the government what how can i help people with that because at the moment it's a piece of paper that doesn't mean anything so i decided that i was going to grow my own and i was going to grow the strains that i'd been prescribed similar strains that have been prescribed um and i was going to walk into the police station and i was going to say i'm growing cannabis at this address i am a legitimate patient here's all of my you know here's my past prescription here is the issue um what are you you know what can you offer me some kind of um can you accept that i am not doing this for any kind of gain, commercial gain, or for anything other really than just trying to keep myself as well as I possibly can be. And then I thought that doesn't go far enough. Like we, if they do turn around and say, okay, we're gonna let you carry on doing it, hush, hush, that doesn't solve anybody else's problem. No. And and some somebody needs somebody needs to put their head on the chopping block here. And if I am classed as a legitimate patient, then is going to have to be me or somebody like me. Um, so I decided to go sort of all out. So I walked into the police station with a signed uh, declaration saying, my plants are at this address. Um, I'm going to be growing, you know, not overgrowing. I'm going to be growing, uh, you know, just the amount that I need. If if for whatever reason, I'm particularly green-fingered and really good at it and I, and I end up with an excess... I'll either destroy it or come and hand it in or do whatever with it. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not going down the skate park to flog it to the, to the kids yeah. down there. You know, I'm, that's, you know, quite clearly that's not what I'm, my intentions are. So I, you know, I came up with the idea of like an amnesty. I thought, right, so what if we just, we let people, we have this, we have this legitimate pool of patients that were legitimized by the government last year. And the government basically said, and I didn't totally agree with the, only the four indications that were outlined in the clinical interim guidelines. For those of you that don't know, that is chronic pain, spasticity, um, nausea and chemotherapy, and uh, intractable epilepsy. But by virtue of their, their government's own admissions, they had said, 
these patients should be given uh, you know the chance to try these medicines so I was like okay they're your rules you've made those rules the other set of rules is the is the sentencing guidelines for the police that says that under nine plants can be classed as personal use that's their rules right so it's like what can we do with those two with their within their rules to count is there a way we can run a pilot to then allow those patients initially and you know and then sort of spreading out to other patients those patients initially the right to grow their own medicine a couple of plants um to then be able to treat themselves effectively without fear of the door coming through. So I went in and I said to the police, right, what is what is the what is your operational um, system for if somebody reports a smell of cannabis from number twenty? They said, right, what we'd do was we'd put a load of resources to intelligence gathering, we'd uh, do this, that and the other, we'd do, you know, we'd past the house and see you know see if there's anybody around we'd do some checks on the property we'd you know check the electricity we do all these other things that these other things that they can do to 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 sort of see if if it could be a potential grow house i just thought christ that must be costing loads of money and time and resources and and stuff uh, what if there was a, another way so i said what if we you know there was like a database of patients and you could just put the postcode in and it flags up Oh, there's a patient growing in that area. Can we ring them up? Ring them up and say, all right, Vera, we've had a complaint. Um, can we bop our heads in and just check that you're not growing a complete farm in there? So so my idea was that in that in that case, in the case of a complaint, they wouldn't need to be kicking doors down and hiring a tactical team and doing all this intelligence gathering for the sake of a couple of plants. They could go and have a cup of tea with Vera, poke their nose in the tent and say, oh, she's got four plants. That's under the threshold for personal use she's a registered patient let's leave her alone kind of thing maybe buy a few air fresheners vera that's you know that's community that's what i would consider to be community and sensible use of resources community policing um rather than the really heavy-handed five in the morning dawn raid boot through the door dogs houses you know houses up all over tip the places to tip that kind of thing um (laughs) <laughs> anyway, so I, I walked into the police station and I, I sort of proposed this and they looked at me like I was completely mad. <laughs> she didn't really know it. She said, okay, so nobody's ever walked in and admitted <laughs> admitted this before. No one's ever walked in and said, I've got some cannabis plants at this address. And I was like, okay. And she said, well, you've put me in a really difficult position. And I said, well, like why do you think we're doing like why do you think i'm doing this like we're, we're all in a difficult position this is a difficult situation yeah welcome to my world sorry. yeah absolutely so you know we had um following on from that i had some conversations with uh, a pcc from brighton and then um the campaign really took off because i opened it up to patients to say would you be do you fit this criteria initially and would you be interested in a pilot project that allowed you to grow a couple of plants for your own use and it just went mental um the you know the patients signed up uh, within a couple of weeks and it was within three weeks we had a nationwide coverage so we had every single police jurisdiction in the country covered by patients um, those patients then wrote to their police and crime commissioners to say you know we'd really like you to take this scheme seriously and we had some really 
amazing contact back from those PCCs, some of which um, I don't really know how they put that in writing because they were so enthusiastic about something that needed to happen here. They didn't want to have to be involved in this at all. They want, they actively want something like this to exist. It was quite positive. And then um, fast forward, of my, my PCC, however, bit of a different story. So despite living in the wonderful sort of like world of Brighton where, you know, I suppose you would class everybody as left wing and a little bit hippified and everyone's... I mean, it's got a liberal reputation, yeah, hasn't it, right? Yeah. I mean, if you can't smell cannabis in Brighton, you know, I think you need to be worried. Uh, but however, we Sussex is covered by a conservative PCC because of all the little villages. So, you know, we sort of, when you add all of those up, we've got a conservative PCC. And she, you know, on the phone to me, like we were speaking about earlier, was all for it. Absolutely all for it. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, so are you going to do something about this? Are you going to sign up to the scheme? Oh, no, no, no. We can't. We can't be having that. Right. So uh, then the division commander sent a sergeant round to the house, the same lady who I went in and spoke to initially, to come and confiscate the plants. She turned up, bless her, quite upset. I was calming her down. <laughs> she was well, well in up. She really did not want to be removing my plants. And, you know, she said, you know, if, if I could be anywhere else right now, I would. This isn't what I would consider an appropriate action. I really don't want to take your medicine away. Um, and I said to her, I'll be honest, as soon as you leave, I'm going to plant more seeds. So please help yourself because you're just going to have to keep coming back. Um, so she took my plants away, but, but she said, you know, I'm going to leave you. I said, I'm going to plant more seeds. And she said, well, I'm leaving your equipment. She kind of just said it like that. And she even removed the plants. I had to, it was horrible. I had to rip them out of their pots. I was like, oh, it's like a kick. I was like, my babies. To kick, remove them out of the pots so that I could keep my pots. So that's how, I mean, she knew I was going to plant more seeds. She left the soil. She left the seeds. She left my pots. She left the tent, everything. And she went, um, she even went to the car to, to collect a paper evidence bag so that the neighbours couldn't see. I nearly said to her, actually, most of the neighbours I've given oil to for their arthritis or for the leukaemia or for the bad back or, you know, for the balm for they're over the road. Um, I said, you know, they'd probably be quite encouraging of my, of my grow if, you know, if they knew anything about it. But so, yes, yeah, so she was quite good. Um, so at that point, that point, though, was a little bit because of the really good feedback that I'd gotten from all of the other areas, I was just thinking, this is a joke. Like, what am I going to do now? I'm just going to have to keep keep planting and hope for the best. Um, and that week, everything shifted slightly because then the Police Federation got in touch. I spoke to the Police Federation and they are cool people. So they... Police Federation pretty much represent every copper on the beat and they write policies based on each is the sort of beat cop experience. Mm. So they take feedback and then they represent from a higher level. And they, I spoke 
with the lead of that who writes the drug policy. Um, and he's, you know, he's a Mancunian, so he's, he was already on my team. Um, and we had a really good, we had a, an absolutely mammoth conversation about this, about drug reform generally, but about the cannabis situation. And he said, at the end of the call, he said, I'm going to back you on this. And I just, that changed again. That whole thing changed again because that is something that is above the PCCs. It's above the beat cops. It's above, you know, community policing. This is something that could really um, be effective on a national level. And he, you know, the very next day, he, you know, he went public in the, I can't even remember what paper it was at the time, but he went public, I think it was in the Times, um, backing the campaign. And just last week, he convinced the, he took the National Police Chiefs Council round, who said, this is brilliant, let's, you know, let's go to the Home Office and let's have a meeting about this. So they took it to the Home Office last week and um, I was expecting another kick in the gut there because the Home Office have been historically quite, I think they're pretty sick of me. I think they're pretty sick of us in general. Good. Yeah. Um, They know what to do to get rid of you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so they went in armed with, you know, their opinions and their the backing of the whole of the police community and that they represent them and said, you know, this is a ridiculous situation. Our police don't, didn't, didn't sign up to be taking people's medicine away. And actually you need to be taking this pilot very seriously. We, you know, we are publicly backing it now. And apparently the meeting, it was an internal meeting. I didn't go, um, but it went very well. Um, And the home office admitted that this situation can't, can't continue we can't we can't keep criminalizing people for for taking for taking a medicine when people that can afford it can access it quite easily and they saw that but they also saw it from a policing point of view and they said you know we don't want officers traumatized by these raids by taking these patients medicine away and um it was, it was interesting because that week and i'd spoken to the police federation about about this this is a, a case that's you know I have to have to be careful with because it's an anonymous patient. But there was a young mum who has epilepsy, quite it's uncontrolled by any any drugs. A young mum, she's got one of her kids is quite disabled, and she um, managed to keep herself seizure free for eight whole months, which has never happened in her life by consuming oil that she makes from her plants, a couple of plants. Um, one night, one day in the it was like five in the morning, kick through the door, full on tactical gear assault, scared the absolute, traumatized those babies, traumatized those little kids, and if you can imagine that, that fear point, that trauma point at that age, when you when you know when you're teaching kids that the police are there to protect you or the police are coming, it's all going to be okay, and then they come through the door, armied up with, batons and dogs and all kinds, and come in and you know and take your mum away. So they took her away and um, took all of her medicine. This was for the sake of three plants. Two weeks later, her one of her kids, it was you know under under ten, um, found her seizing, and she went into hospital in, in status, which just means sort of permanent seizure activity. Mm. And she was in hospital for weeks because they'd taken her oil away. And you know, I I spoke 
to and there's been there's been a few that this is just a recent case i mean there's thousands of them that we get reported i spoke to the police federation about this and i said you know this is this is the reality this is the reality of what your police are doing to these people and to kids this is you know this has got to stop and he and i think he saw that and he took that on when he went to that home office and i think he made quite an emotional plea which was great and so the outcome of that meeting was that it's it's being Carly's amnesty is being put on the agenda for the next uh, drug strategy meeting which is where all drug policy begins so every drugs policy that we have starts at that meeting mm. and so the, it's on the agenda to make a slight policy change so that the police are essentially allowed to allow this to happen because one thing that the police uh, the PCCs have said is we desperately desperately want this to happen we, we would sign up tomorrow all we need we don't need a law change all we need is a tweak in policy so that we are allowed to allow it because at the moment and what they Sussex police gave me the example of this it's it's illegal to carry knives you can't just waltz down the street with a bloody big knife in your hand and carry it wherever you like you just can't do it it's illegal you're going to get nicked but there's a there's a policy exception within that law and there's a few examples of this that says if you're a chef and you're on your way to work carry a carry a, a massive knife carry three if you like carry it wherever you you know you're on your way to work as a chef that's the policy exemption if something could exist here that meant that we were allowed to allow that and there was a policy exception of that kind of that kind then we would sign up tomorrow this this could be this could go national and so um from that feedback what what i'm aiming to do now is to go for a very slight policy change and the police federation and um, a legal team are working on what that policy change would look like what the precedent is um how to word it how to fit it into policing they're coming up with ideas and the legal arguments for that now to go into that drug strategy meeting so that when it comes up we hit them with that and it's already all done for them so we you know there's no work needed it's just sign on the dotted line so you know that you know we don't i don't really know what's going to happen but that's the state of play of things at the minute and uh i've been in contact with lots of of policing um, organisations and high level, very high level people at the Home Office who who want to see this work. So, providing we get the policy amendment, I don't know. I, I sort of think that it might have legs. I mean, <clears throat> this is the uh, ultimately the craziest thing, isn't it? Because all it takes is just a tweak, mm. a, a tweak mm. to a policy. Yeah, that we create. Yeah, and it's it's it's, it's all changed. Yeah, and this is the uh, you know this is the this is ultimately the crazy thing you know when they sort of say oh no we can't do that because there's a there's a there's a law in place you're just like well we created the laws yeah you know we can we can change it we can we can just change it and I remember I can't remember the exact terminology when they're talking about oh no you know, cannabis can't be a medicine you're like well why. Mm. You just, you literally we create a new category for cannabis as a yeah. medicine, and it's as simple as creating a new policy. Just just and that's just 
stuff written down on a piece of paper which is just stamped and signed. Yep, we accept that. Boom. Instant instant results, instant change. Hmm. And yet, you know, they seem to just get so stuck on on even discussing it. They're like, well, no, we can't do that. What do you mean you can't? Of course you can. You can do anything you want. Yeah. you just got to decide to do it. Somebody wrote that law in the first place. Yeah. No, it's, to just just rewrite it. Like what? Exactly. It's, 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 it's not rocket science. <laughs> no. Just just make a bloody decision. This is this is what we're going to do. This is the way we're going to go forward. But it, I think it's exciting that you know the police federation, like you sort of say, they they represent the you know the bobbies on the beat. You know yeah. the, the guys on the forefront. And you know I've had I've had situations. I remember years ago uh, when I first moved to London, and uh, I was. I was having a I was having a vape in a park mm. in central London in St James's Park and it was at night time and um we got caught by the city police and there was this old old school copper and this young copper the old school copper was all right the young copper was just um full of ego and yeah. wanting to impress and um it was a really interesting situation where the, the the older policeman who you're obviously able to talk to and you could I could relate to and you know I was, I was very polite very very calm you know very respectful and sort of you know I'm a, I'm a medical cannabis user you know this is why I use cannabis I said you know I get that it's inappropriate and I'm sorry that you know you've caught me and um, a really interesting thing happened where the young copper actually called for backup so very quickly two coppers turned into six and you're like, oh god, you know, I'm in real trouble now. And I'm thinking, you know, I've got, I've got, I've got all my medicine on me in my bag. And you're like, you know, if they if they take this off me, it's mm. when I first moved to London, you know, I wasn't earning much money, and you know, I, I certainly couldn't have afforded to go out and replace it, yeah, straight away. So it would have been like, um, you know, I mean, this is going to make my life harder. And um, I remember sort of saying to him, like, look, you know. This is who I am. I'm not going to lie to you. And uh, this is what I do for a job. And if you if you arrest me and you charge me for for this, you know this this will affect my career. I'll, I'll, I'll lose my job. I'll be fired immediately just because, you know, at that time I was working with highly vulnerable people. Yeah. You know, in a position of uh, power and responsibility. And I was like, look, you know, you've got the power here to to do you know you to do what you need to do i said but if you do charge me for being in possession of cannabis i said that's going to show up on my yeah. criminal records check and my employers will terminate my contract instantly and i didn't expect that plea to really sort of achieve anything and um he sort of went away and he sort of came back and he's like um He's like, right, he said, um, because I've found you in possession of cannabis, he said, I'm going to have to give you, he said, I'm going to have to give you a street warning. He said, the street warning will not show up on any record. Mm-hmm. He said, so you don't have to worry about your career. I was like, well, you know, that's that's a huge blessing. So I, I literally was just like, you know, 20 years of careers straight out of the window, which it would have been, yeah. you, know, you know, because in that sort of line of work, there's just no exceptions. And... Uh, the next sentence was very, very interesting, and it really sort of showed me that, you know, the police aren't as bad as, you know, a lot of us sort of think. And by having a sensible adult on, on this conversation with him, I'd obviously appeal to his, 
is human nature. And he said to me, he said, now, if you uh, tell me that you have nothing in your bag, then um, I won't need to search your bag. And uh, so, you, you've got nothing in your bag? I was like, I've got nothing in my bag. <laughs> what bag? Uh, well, yeah, what, what bag? And he's like, nothing, search bags, nothing found in my bag. <laughs> and, at, and at that point, I thought to myself, you know, that, that was a good move, man. You know, big respect. Because I think, I think a lot of us, you know, are very easy to sort of slam the police and to, you mm. know, there's definitely this sort of, this element of of people that sort of, you know, they don't like the police, they sort of see them as this and that. But ultimately the police are just like you and I, they're, they're human beings and they're doing a job. And I know it's not necessarily an excuse while I'm just doing my job. But I think the police do have a, they do have a discrepancy. They can, they can, um, you know, they can they can use their discrepancy to, if they feel it's necessary to do something or not to do something. So I was very, I was very, uh, very pleased that in that situation that that police officer decided not to uh, end my career right there and then. Yeah, absolutely. And it's nice to sort of hear that, you know, the, the police federation is obviously listening to the real coppers on the beat who are dealing with these sort of real life situations all the time. And, you know, I mean, I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of police over the last sort of five, six years. And they've all said the same. They're all just like, you know, cannabis. You know, yeah, we don't want to be bothered. Like, yeah. This is not a priority for us. I remember a few years ago, I was out in central London and I was talking to some pretty senior police officers. I think, I think, it, was at a, I think it was at some sort of rally. I think we were probably doing outside Parliament or something like that. And I said to him, I was like, look, you know, honestly, you know, is cannabis a priority to you guys? And he literally laughed at me. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, mate. He's like, <laughs> he's like this is London, you know. There, there, yeah. are, there are bad people in London committing very serious violent crimes. He's like, cannabis is not a priority to us at all. He's like, you know, we're not going to go out looking for people who are smoking cannabis. If we come across it, then by law, we have to do something about it. Mm. He said, but we're not. We're not going to go out of our way to sort of find you. He's like, you know, if people report you, he said, as a duty, we have to come out and, you know, to investigate. But it's not a priority to us. You know, we we understand that cannabis users are, you know, the majority of the time, they're non-violent. You mm. know, they are just, you know, you're relaxed. I remember when I, when I lived in Bermuda, one of my brother's oldest friends from school was, a, was an armed police officer in, in Bermuda. And um, he said to me, really interesting thing. He's like, um, you know, and they're really strict on cannabis in Bermuda. You know, they, they would lock you up for it. And he said, the thing, the thing is, he said with cannabis, he's like, um, the worst thing about cannabis is when the island is dry. I was mm. like, oh, why is that? He goes, well, he said, because when, when there's lots of cannabis on the island, he said, people, they're just sitting around smoking, chilling, playing computer games, sitting on the beach. He said, when there isn't any cannabis on the island, he said, those same people, he said, are out drinking. Yeah. And he said, when you mix alcohol with people with mental health issues, he said, that's when, he, and he said, you see a huge spike in violent crime. He said, when the, when the island is dry. You know, there's only 60,000 people on the island. So, you know, you can see this data. It's real life data. You know, it's mm. really there just in this small community. And he said, you know, we know when the island is going to be dry because, you know, there might have been a big bust on a cruise ship, which was bringing in, 
you know, kilos of cannabis or, you know, we've busted a grow or something like that. And he said, you know, they'd all, the, the spike in violence would continue going up. And he said, as police, you know, we were very happy to turn a blind eye because, you know, very rarely do anybody get violence on, you know, on cannabis or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you if you compare it to something like alcohol, and you know, and I thought that's such a valid point. And you know, you see that in London. You know, I mean, you know, I travel around London at all times of day and night. And I was on a tube. You know, gosh, four weeks ago, four or five weeks ago, uh, just minding my own business, and there were these two guys on the tube, really, really drunk, like mm. really, really drunk. And I suspect they were probably on other substances as well. And these two men kicked off at these two women over the smallest thing. And they were foul. They were so violent. They were so aggressive. They were just so horrible. And just like, literally, they're just this, this horrendous situation ensued on the tube. You know, just absolute mind-blowing violence or toxic explosion of human emotion from these two men. Over over something like ridiculous, mm. like completely absurd, and that you know that that was alcohol, like, you know, uh, you know, probably cocaine mixture of both. Yeah. I, saw, I suspect because it was it was just spectacularly violent and horrendous, and you know, I mean these 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 poor women. I mean it was just it was just awful, mm. and you know you you see that you see it all the time in London, you know, yet. Alcohol is 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 a, is a culturally acceptable. It's encouraged. It's encouraged in our society, and yet we know it it, it destroys lives. It, it it kills thousands of people every single year. Yeah. The violence, you know, the domestic abuse, all stem, which stems from alcohol is. Too- and it's a waste of resources. If you think about all of the hospital admissions, like the ridiculous percentage of them that are alcohol related. Oh, yeah, yeah. For, for Thursday, Friday, Saturday night in London, I mean, yeah. you know, I think 90% of what they do is going to be alcohol induced <laughs> yeah. BS. Which is mad, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I think a, a, a copper said to my sister once that, you know, when a call comes in over the radio and it's. Uh, it's an alcohol-related call or it's a cannabis-related call, they'll often argue about who gets to go to the cannabis-related call because they're, like, they're generally quite lovely. They're no, they're no bother, really. Like, But if you go to the booze-filled one, then you're in for a load of drama and being, you know, being abused and you know violence and, and all that, and they are a lot of bother. And um, it's just funny that, we don't, that we're not listening. Mm. It, it seems like something that we all know, but nobody's actively listening or doing anything about it particularly those in government and that's all it's all arse covering it's all can't be seen to rock the boat a lot of them you know the the home secretary at the moment is going for uh, a pm seat so isn't going to want to do anything radical uh you know and so that's you know it's another issue you know the the health secretary is getting completely bombarded by all kinds of stuff about the you know the autism scandal the you know the cannabis issues the you know and but they don't want to do anything to rock the boat so it's just it's just a load of arse covering and putting a plaster on it and waiting until yeah. the next person takes over and they can not have to worry about it anymore do you know what i think it is and again this frustrates me considering um you know these 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 people in power should should have some sort of backbone I think they're cowards. Yeah, agreed. They're, they're absolute cowards, you know, because, I mean, 
you, you, you're there, you're a public servant, so you're being funded by the public purse. Behind closed doors, you openly admit that you support something, but you're a coward because you're, you're, you're not, you're not going to stand up and say what is true to represent the people that are ultimately paying your wages. Mm-hmm. And this frustrates the hell out of me. because, And, and again, this is this, again, it almost feels it's this, this unique British problem that, you know, in France... You know, they would kick off. They would take to the streets. Yeah. You know, they would be like, whatever. I mean, I remember when, you know, Amsterdam introduced the weed pass and you know to ban all tourists from coffee mm. shops. And like, all the coffee shops just like, not on your life, mate. No bloody way. They kicked off about it. They're like, well, we're we're not going to listen. You, you you try and enforce it. Good luck to you. And you know, and the whole thing, the whole scheme fell. Yeah, fell at the first hurdle. And you know, I'm not I'm not sitting here encouraging anarchy but you know these people we vote them into power you know they work for us they are public servants and they they're they're there and their their main interest should be to serve the greater population in what they want and they should start listening to us and and it's we live in this strange situation where ultimately you know literally a handful of people make decisions for millions and millions of others and it's, it's 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 flawed but also just the rhetoric behind cannabis, you know, one of the biggest things that you always hear about in the British media is, and one of the key points that I think they keep bringing up to keep it illegal is, you know, cannabis and mental health, cannabis mm. and schizophrenia and stuff like that. And as someone who's, you know, been fortunate enough to travel a lot and to spend time in other countries and other cultures, you know, the whole notion of cannabis <laughs> causing schizophrenia, yeah. right? Yeah. It's never discussed in places like California where, you know, they've been allowing cannabis to be used for years. Canada never talks about, oh, well, we, we, we've got to protect people from schizophrenia. This seems to be a completely unique British problem. I mean, maybe it's because our cannabis is so incredible and so strong. Oh, we're made of different, we're literally made of different skin. We're made different, yeah, yeah, different stuff. Because, I mean, you know, the US media don't bang on about schizophrenia. I mean, it's literally, it's never bloody mentioned. It's never mentioned. And in Thailand, they're, you know, they're, they had a very different sort of, like, reason a- around prohibition. Their reason wasn't it g- it's going to turn everybody mad. Their reason was, oh, we can't, ha- we can't have people taking cannabis. Everyone's going to be lazy. <laughs> like, that was their, that was their prohibition. They were like, we can't have people just sitting around, not doing anything. Like, we, they need to be, go to work. Like, that was the reason for it being legalised there. That was the demon, the, they demonised it by classing it as something that made you lazy which is which is quite funny because Thai stick is really sativa isn't it like the Thai the, the natural Thai cannabis it will absolutely get you to work <laughs> like, like without a shadow of a doubt and it looks awful but it will do the job yeah I so yeah so Thai stick yeah but I think for me when I realized that cannabis is legal in North Korea I was just like <laughs> what hold on the, the, the most suppressed controlled horrendous country according to western media yeah oh it's legal there so kim jong yeah he, he's he's relaxed that's what about he, that's, a bit of weed. yeah that's how he builds his palaces full of gold assuming yeah possibly possibly um it's, yeah, yeah so it's, it's, a, a, it's a very funny situation that we find ourselves in it's going to be interesting to see well the other thing is and you know i think it's been demonized and you know it can cause a psychosis you know it's gonna and a lot of a lot of the medical the funny thing is our doctors think that cannabis is going to send you mad. And I'm not saying that, you know, that there isn't a risk. Of course there's a risk. But I think that 
it's a risk that needs context. Like what, what, what they don't talk about is that, you know, caffeine can induce a psychotic episode. Alcohol can induce psychosis. Pharmaceutical drugs can induce psychosis. Absolutely. No, it's, 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 it's a very valid point. And, but I think it's also, it's a, it's a good point to discuss because I think <clears throat> as, as cannabis consumers, we're very often, you know, we'll brush off the negatives or side effects mm. to it. But I think, it, you know, from someone who, you know, I would argue I've got a, a pretty broad spectrum and deep understanding of human mental health. And I'm not going to ever say that cannabis is for everybody because, you know, I think cannabis can affect people's mental health. Mm -hmm. But I think it is more, it's more how humans abuse it, overuse it is, is, is the issue. And from my experience with people who have struggled with their cannabis habits, they've always been predisposed to mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And from my experience, yeah, cannabis can potentially exacerbate issues, um, but they've always had those issues beforehand. Yeah. It's the same way as alcohol would, the same way stress would. And, you know, again, when we talk about psychosis, psychosis is just an abnormal thought process, you know, Believing you could fly mm. is psychosis. Believing you are God is a form of psychosis. It's just an abnormal thought process. And, you know, we talk about use cannabis and it's going to turn you psychotic, you know, but psychotic is just that. It's an abnormal thought process. So in that moment of time, you might be psychotic in your thought process. You're not being able to process your thoughts normally. But that doesn't mean that once the cannabis wears off and you sober up, mm that things are you know are going to remain the same obviously you know with with humans we, we're all very different so you are you're going to see all levels of that spectrum you'll see people who can use cannabis every i mean i know people who smoke huge amounts of cannabis yeah, right absolutely and they are highly functional incredibly successful people you know and then i've, I've met people who've had you know a couple of joints as a teenager and it is triggered something it has mm. it has brought on something but when you look at you know clinically and you understand how human mental health works you know there that the cannabis could be the trigger it could be the straw that breaks the camel's back mm -hmm. it could be that one component that you add to this already toxic mental health situation which then blows it all open but from my genuine experience you'll tend to find that bless them those people have already yeah. You know, they're already very predisposed to issues. And, you know, cannabis could trigger it. You know, having an argument with your boss yeah. could trigger it. You know, you losing know, a pet. Losing a pet. Yeah. Caffeine, like you've already said, yeah. alcohol. Or, I think you know. I think they've, they've put there's a statistic. They're looking at uh, air pollution now as a as a viable I think anything which trigger could potentially put for psychosis. Yeah, extra stress on your body and mind yeah. can potentially create a fracture, right? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, again, it's just about having that sensible adult conversation about... It's education, isn't it? And yeah. trusting us. We're not, you know, we're not... It's that whole thing, We, if we go back to our conversation before about the um, about the medical establishment feeling insulted because they're not listening, you know, we're not able to have an adult-to-adult -adult conversation. It's that whole, oh, they can't be trusted. They're all going to, you know, they're all going to go mad. And then what? 
It's like sort of. So, it's so foolish. I, I, you know, I, I, arrogance. Yeah, I smoked skunk. You call it yeah. su- super strong cannabis every single day for over twenty years, mm. and I can assure you, I'm I'm one of the most level-minded creatures mm. you're ever going to meet. Yeah, I've had my I've had my mental health issues. You know, I've I've had an addiction to alcohol. I abused prescription drugs and stuff, but that was all down to life trauma. That yeah. was down to things that I experienced, which created imbalances. You know, in my belief systems and stuff. You know, from a very young age, it wasn't ever induced by, you know, taking drugs. I was drawn to those substances because I was trying to self-medicate and yeah. I was trying to change my, you know, my 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 awareness, my my current state of mind. Um, not in a healthy way, you know, but you don't think about that when you're when you're living in mental turmoil. You know, you just want something which is just going to change that state of mind in that moment. And you know, for me, alcohol was a appeared to be a very good, you know, option for me, which did dull down the pain and the discomfort that I I was experiencing at that time. You know. Uh, How long has it been now since you had a drink? 34 weeks. Wow, boom. Good Th- work. 34 weeks, yeah, 34 weeks, absolutely, completely sober. But that's been an interesting experience. You mm, know, I bet. I, you know, because, you know, my wife used to tease me. She'd be like, I don't think I've ever known you sober. And I'd be like, oh, don't be stupid. Of course you have. But actually, you know, she was completely right. She probably never knew me as a as a sober person because, you know, I'd mm. always be under the influence of something. Um, and, you know, she'd say, you know, you, you're always a bit of a pain in the ass, to be perfectly honest. And now she says, you know, you're an absolute pleasure to be around. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, now she says, oh, you're still a pain in the ass. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sh- I'm, I'm sure I am still a pain in the ass for her. But she says nine times out of ten, I'm, I'm a much more stable and a much happier sort of person now. So that's it's a good score. Good score. But the crazy thing was is that, again, you know, it's these little stories we tell ourselves. The whole idea of giving up alcohol to me was a very scary, intimidating thought process. I'd be like, you know, it took me ages to even accept that I had a drinking problem. Before, yeah. it was, you know, my ego is like, dude, you don't have a drinking problem. What, what the hell is your wife talking about? Just ignore her. And I, I, and I did. I'd ignore her. I'd shut her down, you know, which is the worst thing you could do to behave like that to someone you love love and respect massively but again it was that it was that battle of mental health issues where Mm. I tried to keep those mental health issues away from her because you know as a man with mental health issues you deem that as some sort of weakness yeah and all that sort of bs so I sort of likened it to the fact well you know if I'm just drinking all the time then at least I don't have to face up to my mental health issues you know but it took me years to before I go yeah actually you know what I'm an alcoholic Mm. And then it was just making those sort of decisions and to sort of try and heal whatever was creating those situations where I felt I needed to drink. And when you started to explore it, you realized that it was just stuff from years and years and years ago. A lot of the times stuff you'd forgotten about, you know, your parents' divorce, you know, other little things that just went on in your life, you know, bullying at school, you know, being beaten by teachers, you know, all of these little things. Mm. that sort of create these traumas inside you um and then you uh yeah you just end up falling into that self-medicating routine did you find that plant medicine was enabled you to to process that from a zoomed out point of view so it, it wasn't as painful but you could process those yeah so i mean i know it was going to be painful but you know it wasn't you know you could sort of face it and say okay i'm ready to have a look at this now like yeah with the with the with the with the plant medicine so um 
I think what really helped me, so 34 weeks ago, I, yeah, well, 35 weeks ago, I went to, went back to, uh, to go deep into the plant medicine world. And by that point, I was, you know, I'd got to a stage where in my relationship where I was just like, look, if I don't make bloody changes, then this is ultimately, this behavior is going to cost me everything. Yeah. And that was a good sort of like tipping point in my life because I think a lot of the time, you know, for me, I needed to get up to a point of like severe discomfort before I had the power or, or the, the the motivation to go, right, I need to sort out my shit. Mm. And that's basically it. You just got to sort out your bullshit. You got to face your bullshit. So what, what ayahuasca allowed me to do was that when I went into the ceremony and I was just like, look, you know, I'm an alcoholic and I need help. And what the ayahuasca did is it, it's a, it's very difficult to explain if you haven't done it, but I'll, I'll, I'll try the best way to liken it is that it took me through this whole mind movie of my life, the last 23 years of being a drinker. And it showed me all the times that I'd hurt people that I'd loved due to being drunk or inappropriate or saying stupid things or whatever. Flippant comments was a classic example. When you're pissed, you just say something and it would just cut someone. Mm. So it showed me all the times that I'd, I'd behave like that to people and hurt. And I was able to experience it from their point of view, which was very painful. I bet. And um, it was a it was a deep seven hour entrenched experience, just showing me all all of my shit. And at the end of this sort of mind movie, it I was just sort of left there feeling pretty broken, pretty embarrassed, pretty ashamed of my behaviour. And I was like, look, I, I I get that you know alcohol doesn't add anything to my life. Ultimately, it takes it, it steals my energy, it steals my essence, it steals my focus, it steals my attention. It it makes me very unpresent. And I was like, okay, I get that, but I don't, I'm not sure how to change it. And, uh, you know, it was explained to me whilst I was in the ayahuasca state that to, to change it, I needed to understand and to heal the reasons what created me to drink in the first place. So then it went back over my childhood and it highlighted a number of key stress points, pain points in my childhood. One being my parents' marriage breakdown, which was very traumatic, you know, at four years old, sort of, seeing this sort of idealistic world that you, you 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 thought you were part of and your two creators basically ripping mm. the shit out of each other and just destroying everything destroying that whole belief system and that that created a huge amount of trauma for me and then it showed me that then i worked out it showed me eight years old at a family wedding feeling very anxious so my marriage the marriage breakdown of my parents created anxiety because obviously my whole world was just thrown into disarray i didn't know what was true false right or wrong what was real what wasn't that created the anxiety and then eight years old i was at a family wedding i think it's my great grandmother getting married again and i was very anxious being in you know a very stimulating environment with lots of older people i didn't really know and i mind swept some sherry off the tables Hmm. And I remember thinking, ooh, guess what? I don't feel anxious anymore. Oh, so this drink, whatever it is, I mean, it tasted horrible, but it, it, it this is quite fun now because I was drunk. Yeah. You know, my mum my was absolutely furious. <laughs> so at eight years old, I learned that when I'm feeling anxious and feeling a bit shitty, mm. I can drink this liquid yeah. and it's going to change it. Obviously, I didn't start drinking at eight years old, but I still always experienced anxiety so then when I was like 
13, 14, you know, then it would be like to your dad, oh, can I have a sip of your cider, dad? Mm. Yeah, of course, yeah, have a sip of the cider. And then at 14 years old, you know, I was, I, was, I was tall, I was big. You know, we grew up in the countryside at 14 years old. You're going off to pubs to meet mates. Yeah. You know, sit in the garden, your you know, 17-year-old mate will go and get you a pint. And I very quickly learned that the social situations that would create anxiety and fear in me were made dramatically better if I drank. Mm. And that was just this incredible reinforcer of like, okay, you suffer from anxiety, but you don't have to. If you don't want to, you drink. And that was the default thing. Mm. So then, you know, my very worst is, you know, you'd wake up every single morning and your mind would just be in this toxic chaos of thoughts, processes, because because every single time I was drinking, I wasn't dealing with my issues. So I was just yeah. compounding those issues. So you just wake up with it yeah. there. Oh, gosh, yeah. Every, every single moment, you know, the moment your eyes... Uh, opened and you know you 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 know you're back in the room. This this noise, this toxic chaos, just ensued my life. Mm. And you know my default thing was to yeah to to drink, to use prescription drugs, codeine. You know I had a relationship with sleeping pills for a long time because I couldn't sleep. You know so I've I've been there. I mean I've I've been there and tried everything to sort of just trying to change my state, but not in a bad way. I wasn't trying to do it because I'm a bad person. I was just desperate to try and escape yeah. this chaos in my head. And yeah, sure, the ways I went about it were inappropriate times and ultimately took from me. It never really added any value to me. And that's what I learned. And, you know, and now sort of being, you know, just under eight months sober, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, why the hell did I ever drink? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm never going to drink again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just like, the whole idea of alcohol now is just like it's an app you know as far as I'm concerned I mean there's no judgment I don't judge people you're free to do whatever you want but for me personally it just stole it stole many many years from me and it prevented me from ever really hitting my maximum potential it created an awful lot of fear it created a lot of anxiety now I recognize it the whole idea of when I was an alcoholic of doing podcasts or doing videos or exposing myself to the world and putting myself up on social media there's no way i would have done that there's just no way i'd have been just terrified at the the whole notion of that so what i realized is that i've wasted wasted yeah sort of 23 years of my life living in fear suppressing my mental health issues with a poison Mm. and it, it did it did it did bugger all for me. It stole and it suppressed and it stopped me from, you know, ever really hitting my full potential. You know, I was fortunate, you know, I've, I still had a good life. I've still done well, but, you know, I'm, I'm very aware that I've limited my experience massively. And now, at like, you know, 40 in six months time and I'm, for the first time in a long time, I'm stupidly excited. I'm just <laughs> like, oh my God, you know, life is just beautiful. You know, I'm, I'm so much more present. I'm so attached to everything and a part of everything. You know, my emotional range of in, of emotions has just exploded. You know, before, I'd, my emotional range was actually very limited because I was drunk or high. Mm. And now, you know, I experience, I've ex- over the last sort of, you know, seven, eight months, I've experienced pain and emotions like I never experienced pain and emotions, but I've also experienced unconditional love like I've never experienced unconditional love. So... It feels like I'm now back having this really deep, fully immersive human experience, and it's it, and it's beautiful. Whereas before, I just realised that I was just shutting off. I was shutting off to so much, and you know, ultimately, I was hurting the people that I loved. I was hurting my wife by not being present. She's like, I never felt you're present. 
Wow. I was just like, shit, how much, how, I, mean, I can't imagine what that must have felt like for her. Mm. Awful, awful. And, and that wasn't even my intention. It wasn't, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want it to feel like that. Mm. But it was all about me. It was yeah. all about how I felt and my mental health issues. And, you know, so going through the sort of deep plant medicine healing experience with the ayahuasca that I've done, you know, I've drunk it 10 times now, has, it just unlocked all of that bullshit. It, and, it, and it just gave me the platform and the understanding to be able to heal it. So then I had that choice. Okay, dude, you can, you can stay exactly where you are with all your mental health issues and you, you know where you stand with all of that and you know how to deal with it. You can suppress it with more drugs and drink and carry on regardless. Or for once you can face it. Mm. You can face it, you can go through that darkness, you can face that fear and you can heal. And um, yeah, I mean, the journey has been tough. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, ayahuasca is, a, is an amazing medicine. It's, but it's also, it will be one of the most terrifying experiences you'll ever put yourself through. But once you go through that fear and all that terror, it's, it affords you this just unbelievable freedom because you realize that actually the other side of all that fear, the other side of all those stories you tell yourself of why you possibly can't do this, why you can't heal, why you shouldn't heal, or you know, you're just too bloody terrified to even explore your darkness. The other side of all of that fear and all that bullshit is just this incredible freedom. And I think this is what people have found interesting, you know, because obviously I've had an online present for, you know, presence for like the last eight years, is that people have really seen this huge change, this, this, this evolution in my character. Mm. Which is good because now people are reaching out and going, oh, dude, you know what? I, I, I relate to everything you say. I'm in that same situation. You know, I drink too much or I use too many. I smoke too much. And I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I've got my own issues and mental health issues and I want to heal. And it's inspiring to be able to see you at your age sort of stand up, deal mm. with it and, 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 and grow and move on. It must be an honour to, you know, to have had that experience. Because many people are obviously don't, don't come out of that cycle. You, you know, you were able, you know, to drop the fear and to move into, move past your shadow self and, and, and on. And now you're inspiring others to do that. that you know, that's. But that's the thing. It's an honour. Yeah, it's the, the 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 real key point is to, you know, don't limit yourself by fear. You mm. know, I've come to realise that actually fear is just false evidence appearing to be real. And again, I mean, I did a video last week where I was like, don't get trapped by your thoughts. And this is the thing is so many of us, we live in our heads. So we spend a lot of time in our head creating stories, mm -hmm. thought processes. And then we create these stories. We end up attaching a lot of emotion to them. We attach a lot of time to them. So then we believe it all to be real. And what I've come to realize that actually a lot of what I was scared of a lot of what I thought would cause me pain was nothing but my own thought processes. So ultimately, you know, for ever since I was a young child, I was stuck. I was limiting myself. I was self-sabotaging my own life through my own fears, my own insecurities. And that's just a crazy situation to be in because, you know, I believed all of those things to be real. But it's not real. It was just my thought processes. You know, the whole idea of doing, starting a podcast, you know, however long it's been now, I think it's like, yeah, about eight months, you know, and the, the fear of recording, the fear of all of these little fears that I had. Yeah. And guess what? None of them have come true. 
like literally not a single fear has ever come true over why I shouldn't do a podcast or why I was too scared to start doing a podcast. The same with, you know, talking about my mental health issues very openly, you know, exposing yourself, you know, making yourself vulnerable online to the world. All of that fear was just like, oh my God, people are going to judge you. They're going to think this, they're going to think that, you know, all of this sort of BS. Again, none of it has come true. In actual fact, totally the opposite. All I've had is huge encouragement from people I've never met all over the world going, dude, thank you so much for being honest about your struggles and your your journey, you know, and hearing your story has now helped me think about how I should make changes to my life. So this is just, it just backs it up even more for me that, you know, we as human beings can really trap ourselves yeah. in our own minds for our own thoughts. And because we invest so much time, energy, and emotion to those thought processes, we believe it to be true. When in actual fact, we are just trapping ourselves. We are, we are, we are creating prisons that we live inside our own heads. And then ultimately we blame and we justify the external world of why we're not where we should feel we, we want to be. But in reality, it's, it was all my fault. It was, it was my shit. And I was the one creating all of those limits in my life. And, you know, going deep into the world of ayahuasca and plant medicine and, you know, having a really amazing team of people support me through that has really shown me that it's all just bullshit. It was, it was literally, and it was, it was as simple as that. It was mm. bullshit I was making up in my own head. And because I was attaching emotion to it, I then believed it to be real. Mm. And it wasn't real at all. It was all in my head. <laughs> I, think a lot of, and I think a lot of what people are seeing in you is, and I think this is the key to it, is authenticity. Like, because you are open and raw and honest and will just say however it is, people connect we're very good at hiding behind our fears but we're all, as human beings we're also very good at sniffing out authenticity and i think that's one thing that since you your plant medicine experiences you know people coming to you saying you know i'm i'm at that point you know and they're trusting you and you know you you said that your fear was that you know, you'd get you know abused online or people wouldn't understand or people would take the mick or, or whatever but but people see that you are just being your authentic self well, and there's no, yeah. there's no response to that. No, no and, and, that's, and that's the crazy thing. And that, that's, I think that's one of the things that I've realised that plant medicines like ayahuasca, you know, once you go down that path, once you drink that horrendously foul brown liquid <laughs> and it enters your system, it almost just switches something inside you where it's just like, dude, I don't care how hard you try, Mm. I'm going to push you to be your authentic self. Yeah, and that whether you like it, it or not. And you've you, you got no choice in the matter. Mm. I'm sorry, mate. You, you, we're going to strip away all this human bullshit and you're going to shine your light as you really are. And one of the most beautiful things that I've learned, and, some, and again, it was one of my biggest fears is the area which just terrified me, was vulnerability. Mm. Yeah, well, I think that's fear as a fear of mine. It's yeah. a fear of everybody's, I think. Open yourself up to vulnerability. Own your shit. Become vulnerable. Now, I will, I will take every opportunity to become vulnerable, to show myself as a vulnerable person. And a lot of time, that's just admitting that you're a dick at times and you make mistakes. Mm -hmm. I was an alcoholic and that was my choice. Yeah. Those were my choices. No one else. No one else forced me to be an alcoholic. That was my shit. And you know what, dude? You had to fix that. And 
But owning your shit, taking responsibility for the things you've done in your past and really owning it, your ego, especially as a man, nine times out of ten will never allow you to do that. It's like, Mm. no, 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 you're right, everyone else is wrong. But as soon as you start embracing vulnerability, you actually realise that in that moment of vulnerability, actually is just his unlimited power of strength. Yeah, absolutely. And that for me has just been this incredible thing where I will I will own, I will take ownership, I will admit to anything which puts me in a situation that I used to perceive as being vulnerable. Because in that position of vulnerability, you find the real strength. Mm. And actually that's what people relate to. Mm. Oh, you're being authentic, you're being real, you're being vulnerable guess what well that's exactly how I feel inside so now I can relate to you. I, you you're showing me that you are real and I had this wonderful message from this guy a few months ago and he messaged me he goes he goes it started off along the lines of look mate I, I owe you an apology I thought, oh, okay carry on reading and he said I first started following you about a year ago and uh, he said to be honest he said I just thought you were just an egotistical guy online just pretending to be happy and positive all the time and um he said, but now after watching you, he said, I can see it's completely authentic. He said, I just want to apologize for having that judgment on you because I was in a really bad space personally, going through a really tough time and uh, I just projected that onto you. He said, but it's just so beautiful to see the journey you're, you're on uh, you know, and you just being this vulnerable, authentic person. And this is the thing which makes you realize that we're all exactly the same. We're human beings having this deep experience which at times is very very challenging for a lot of us and that's perfectly normal and that's okay Mm. and but by having more open honest conversations and showing our vulnerability you actually help other people heal and and become much more present with their own current situations so I think it's a beautiful thing and I, I love embracing vulnerability I love you know I've spent a lot of time doing a lot of work on my ego and understanding you know the relationship that the ego plays, you know, in modern society, especially in the plant medicine sort of culture, we, you know, people do talk about ego death and killing off the ego. You know, you don't want to kill off your ego. Your ego is ultimately your best mate. It's it's literally just trying to protect you, but it's a literal system, and it will just it takes things in black and white, and it does overreact at times. But if you create a good, honest relationship with your ego, you'll realise that he's your best friend, and he'll give you some amazing advice and keep you safe in certain situations. Whereas a lot of time in this modern society, our ego overtakes mm. and then gets us into trouble and then our ego won't allow us to apologise because it's like, well, dude, you were right. They're all wrong. It's, it's blame justification, blame justification. Yeah. Instead of just having the balls to go, yeah, you know, I made a mistake. I'm human and that's okay. And that's how we learn. That's perfectly helpful and healthy. <laughs> yeah, gosh. So yeah, Brilliant. the plant medicine route, wow. Yeah, Just, uh, it sounds amazing. And absolutely I think it's going to continue to be, help you grow through, you know, integrating all of this and bringing it and sharing it and hopefully affecting lots of people. Yeah, yeah, ho- hopefully. I mean, I'd lo- what I'd love to see, I'd love to see uh, anyone who wants to enter into British politics I'd like to see them go on a 10-day ayahuasca. I think it should be compulsory. Yeah. Well, do you know what? In um, like places like Mexico, you, you get you get people in positions of power, MPs and, you know, those politi- politicians. They, they do it. Mm. They do it. Yeah, absolutely. Can you imagine Donald Trump? <laughs> right, I, think t- just, I think his head would just pop off, or at least his toupee. Do you know what? I'd be, I'd be fascinated to see someone like that go through, go through the experience just to sort of see how he'd... How he'd weather that 
because I know because you know because I've really fully submersed myself in this this the whole plant medicine world and you know and because I talk about it online I get contacted by all sorts of people from like all over the world like mm. really interesting people as well and um I was talking to a friend of mine who um music industry and um you know he works with this artist you know you know A-lister celebrity you know come from a the dodgy part of town, you know, dodgy upbringing, all this sort of jazz. And, you know, his his 360 was, you know, exploring plant medicines and, you know, completely fundamentally changing his life. And, you know, I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast the other day where he was talking to Mike Tyson. And, uh, you know, those of you who haven't watched it, definitely watch Mike yeah, Tyson, Joe Rogan. It's, yeah. it's, it's fantastic, you know, because growing up in the 80s, you know, Mike Tyson was this scary kind of guy who would bite people's ears off was this super violent man and you you watch him now and I, I guess you know he's in late 50s maybe early 60s or something like that now and he contributes one of his biggest life-changing moments was to um to uh, smoking dmt the mm. bufo from the frog which is a very powerful form of uh, dimethyltryptamine and he said it completely dissolved his ego it, it really showed how how his life had been and why his life had been the way it's been. And now he's just this really chilled, cool guy who's able to look at things objectively, look at his life and his past behavior and understand his insecurities and his fears and all this sort of stuff. And he's really been able to deal with, you know, a lot of his darkness. And, um, you know, he didn't have an easy life at all growing up, you know, came from a you know tough background and, you know, lived in that world of just incredible violence and aggression and anger and uh, you know, now he just likes to grow weed and <laughs> smoke it and have deep deep and meaningful conversations with interesting people so you know I, th- I think I think a lot can be said for starting to a healing process with these plant medicines and I, th- mm. and I think we're going to see we're going to see more and more of this you know I hope so I really hope so I think it's got. He's got to now. That's where. That's where we've got to move to. We've mm. got to move out of this. But when where medicine's concerned, at the very least, we've got to move out of this paternal system and into something more integrated and into something that deals with the person, the person's energy, the person's intention. We can't. We can't keep going the way we are. Um, no. Again, it, it, yeah. it comes back to what we we're talking about. It's about starting to have those sensible adult conversations yeah. about what works, what doesn't. And there's no point kind of going, "Well, this is this is our rules. These are the laws we've made, so we, we're, we're not even going to look at it." You're like, "Well, you know, you created the rules. We can recreate. We can we can rewrite this story." And this is the thing that I've learned is that you know, for years and years, I was just creating these stories in my life, in my head, attaching emotion to them. And because we live in this mirror reality, I was then going forward and experiencing these in, in my external reality, my external world. And once you realize that you can just reframe everything, you can, you can tell yourself another story, you can, you can write a new script, you can write a new play, and then you start implementing that into your life and you'll, you will start to see very positive, you know, beneficial changes to your life. And um, that's something which, you know, going down this deep plant medicine route has really taught me is that we are in control. Mm. We have a lot more control than we realize. 
and it's just about recognizing that and just playing with it, practicing it. And like I sort of said to you earlier, you can do all this stuff for free. You can mm. change your thought processes. Like people, one of my biggest questions I get asked, and I think a lot of people are like, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I believe you, but one of my biggest ones is that how are you always so positive and happy and, you know, high energy? Well, the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, I'm still a human being. I'm still living in this world. So there'll still be things that will potentially tip me, you know, create a stressful situation. But I now have a, a, a huge arsenal of tools to then combat and address that. So things don't upset me like they used to. I'm much more in control of my emotions, my emotions and how I respond to things in my world. And that's a beautiful place to be because you're now, instead of being disempowered and having to fill my life with drink and drugs to try and suppress how I was feeling, I'm now empowered because I recognize that I can choose my emotional state. Mm -hmm. And I say this to a lot of people, you know, just as you can choose to make yourself sad, and you know, classic way of doing that is listening to music that makes you sad and feeling sad and investing in that sad experience, you can do exactly the same with happiness. You can choose to be happy. Mm -hmm. You can choose to be sad. That is a conscious decision you can make. You can raise your vibrations. You can raise your energy just by conscious thought process. But most of us live in this system where we, we fall into this victim mentality. Yeah. Like, I'm feeling like this because of how someone else has treated me. Mm -hmm. When in reality, no one has the power to affect you. It's you responding to how someone has behaved towards you. And, and, and the, the emotion and the energy attached to that action, that behavior they've projected towards you. And again, this sort of frustrates me, you know, why aren't we teaching these simple, very simple tools and, you know, in schools to help Absolutely. people sort of process? I think, yeah, I mean, I, um, at times during my health struggles, I've really had to confront my own victim, mm. like look her in the face and figure out, what all this is about and try and work together rather than working as a sort of an opposing force in a way and um i do think that dropping the chemicals and picking up plants was the first step towards me doing that and treating myself with the respect hmm. that i deserved to change that victim consciousness change that mentality of woe is me, poor me, this has happened to me, these things keep happening to me, you know, and and see it from a, a different point of view. And um, and I know that it's hard, like it's the res people's resistance and the payoff to, to get beyond that is, is hard. It's big stuff, shifting that takes a long time. But quite often I get asked, oh, how, how do you do what you do with, with your health conditions how are you able to be as functional as you are how are you able to be you know on your feet or doing this work with the condition that you've got and, and that's that, that I think is it I think I was just I, I spent a long time you know with my victim in victim mentality but I'm not there anymore I've sort of I've sort of worked that out I think hopefully anyway it might come back to bite me on the bum but um but yeah and I do, I do think there's something in that in in, especially when when you're seeing physical manifestations of that as a health condition, whether that it be mental health or physical health, I think that is alarm bells to to try and treat yourself with respect and treat yourself with kindness and love and and stop with the with the beating yourself up and also let go of that poor me victim 
mentality and i think that's the first step to to being be, being better to mm. healing yeah no no i agree with you I, I i totally agree with you i think um i think it's very easy for all of us to fall into that victim mode i mean i, you know, I know i fell into victim mode many times and mm. i used use the victim mode to justify my behavior to to blame justification justify blame justify blame justify that was just a sort of repetitive pattern that was in my life and that's fine you know what you know that's that's that, that was my choice you know you know but it got it just got to that point in my life where I was just like look you know this is this is going to cost me everything mm. like literally I know, I know I can feel it this this will cost me everything and then I it, it'll only be me sat by myself one day going ah oh, shit mm. yeah, why 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 didn't I have the kahunas to face up because ultimately, for me, and I think this is, you know, this is this is what healing is for a lot of us. And you know, going back to the ayahuasca quickly, you know, most people I talk to, they're like, oh, you know, I, I'd love to do it, but I'm just terrified. I'm like, all you've got to be terrified of is yourself, mm-hmm. which is the scariest thing for a lot of people, myself included. I mean, I've been meaning to do it for years, years, but my resistance is going, uh, uh-uh. your head's going to pop off. And what's going to happen? What changes? Are you going to come back and you're going to realise that this isn't what you want? And then, you know, it's the typical... Well, but I mean, that, that that's, you know, you do have to address those yeah. thoughts. Cause, yeah. you know, like I sort of said to you, I think, in the car is that, um, you know, I'm in the process of filming a video about, you know, the, the, uh, the potential risks, mm-hmm. you know, of, of, of going down the plant medicine route. Because what I have found is that it will disrupt. Yeah. It will disrupt everything everything in your life which isn't in alignment with you mm-hmm. so you know if you're in a job that you hate you know expect that job to be even harder because you everything in your core will just be like walk away walk away walk away walk away mm-hmm. if you're in a relationship which isn't in alignment with you you the chance are oh, that relationship it will fail it mm-hmm. will crumble you might be able to rebuild it in a, in a different fashion and that's brilliant but you know it will disrupt and it, yeah. can, it can disrupt and you know it's it's the it's the integrating back into this normal life after going on these you know mind life changing experiences which i think is probably one of the hardest parts you know mm. of coming back to your reality and going oh gosh you know i now have all this new information and you know i i, I know i need to make changes and those changes will almost be forced onto you um but you know once you get your head around that everything is temporary and uh, everything is a lesson good or bad everything is a lesson so once you're able to reframe that everything is a lesson then if you're learning from it it's always a positive there can't be a negative if you're learning because if you're learning you're expanding you're evolving you're growing um so once you can get your, your human head around that concept then it will just afford you this amazing freedom yeah absolutely well i think i'm i think i'm on the edge i think you're probably your input and experience is probably going to tip me over the edge to drink that horrible liquid. <laughs> I think I'll just be blaming you for everything that happens afterwards. That's that's fine, right? It's absolutely fine. Cool. But I remember, like one of one of one of my um, one of my friends, you know, we she started following me online a couple of years ago, and um, she came on a retreat with me. And bless her, she was she was absolutely terrified, like just full of fear, full of fear. And, um, you know, she, she went through the experience and, uh, yeah, it's, it's fundamentally changed 
mm. big aspects of her life. Mm. Still more, still more work to do. Obviously, it's not, it's not a, it's not a one cut wonder. Where yeah. It's going to sort your shit out. It's a, it is a, is a real journey. You know, for me, I didn't get to nearly forty with forty years worth of baggage to be able to, <laughs> to, be able to shift it all in just in a night. I, I wish it was that simple, but. Um, it isn't, but you know, it's it's all part of evolving and growing and, and growing into yourself, and uh, understanding who you really are and what you bring to the table, and you know, uh, that's the beauty of this world. And that's the beauty of life. Right. Well, when's the next trip? <laughs> well, yeah, o- October. October is a. Is, is damn it! it is I'm going to end up signing up, aren't I? Yeah, probably. Oh, probably. Right, listen, we have just punched past the uh, three-hour mark. Wow, <laughs> yeah. Three hours. We said we were going to do a Joe Rogan-length uh, yeah, podcast. Yeah, I, so I think we've achieved. I think we're going to have to do more podcasts. I think you and I have got lots to talk about. But I think three hours is going to be enough for today. Okay, much of that. So I'd just like to thank you. It's been a fantastic conversation, and I know full well that a lot of people are going to find this really, really informative, which is uh, exactly why we do what we do. So, mm. oh, thank you for having me. It's been good. Well, no, thank you for having Any me. Excuse. We're, we're sat in we're sat in your house, and I'm drinking your coffee. Yeah. So, um, and the sun's come out in Brighton. So, uh, and my stomach's beginning to grumble. Yeah, <laughs> let's go and get some chips on the beach. Go get some chips on the beach. That'd be lovely. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Fantastic, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in and thank you so much for um, sticking with the conversation for three hours. It's a, it was a good, long conversation, so I really appreciate all of you who've uh, stuck it to the end. And once again, I'd just like to thank Canico, our sponsors. Uh, do check them out. They're canico.cbd on Instagram or the website is canico.co.uk if you want to check out their website. Um, and follow me on Instagram. Make sure you follow me on Instagram, actually. That's my main sort of place where I like to sort of hang out and publish different types of content. And you can follow me just at Awesome Boon. And uh, also YouTube. We've done we, we've set up a YouTube channel as well, so where some of my videos, the slightly longer ones maybe, are actually on YouTube as well, where I'm just giving my thoughts on life and general day-to-day nonsense. So big love to all of you. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's podcast, and I wish you all an absolutely beautiful day. Okay.